I had Carl Rove in my class, I don't know, about 10 years ago. And one of the students said, if you could redo your college time, you know, Mr. Rove, what would you do? And Carl said, I take more English classes. And I sort of laughed. And he said, no, I'm serious. He said, your ability to communicate and to write is worth its weight in gold to anybody in politics. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Darren Shaw, is professor of political science at the University of Texas, Austin. He studies campaigns and elections, public opinion and voting behavior, American politics, and survey research. Professor Shaw's most recent book is called The Turnout Myth. Darren also has direct experience in politics, having worked for the three Bush campaigns for president. He's also active in the polling industry as co-director of the Fox News poll, co-director of the University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll, and director of the Texas Lyceum poll. He's also associate principal investigator for the 2020 American National Election Study. So a ton of background in the study of public opinion. We had a good conversation about career, politics, turnout, the Republican Party, and related things. And I found it useful to hear his perspective, which differs in some regards from many of my other guests. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Darren Shaw at UT Austin. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Darren, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, I'm Darren Shaw. I'm a professor in the government department at the University of Texas at Austin, where I've been uh, since 1994. I did my uh, PhD work at uh, University of California, Los Angeles, out at UCLA. I study uh, campaigns and elections, public opinion, voting behavior, survey research, political parties, the whole sort of gamut. I've worked uh, extensively in polling. I'm one of the co-directors of the Fox News poll, and I am a co-director of the University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll, as well as the uh, primary uh, director of the Texas Lyceum poll. I've been involved in some political campaigns over time, I guess, uh, 1992 presidential and the 2000-2004 presidential campaign. So I have a little bit of background experience in practical as well as egg-headed politics. Well, it's a, a great background for teaching about politics and uh, thinking about politics. So I'm really glad to have the chance to talk to you today. Well, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm always curious how people go down the route to the career that they have. What kind of family did you come from? Was it a political family? Where did you grow up? Yes, uh, I grew up in San Diego. My uh, grandparents 
on my father's side moved the uh, the family from Omaha, Nebraska, and I want to say uh, 1950 or so. It's a big Catholic family, the the Shaw family and the Phelan family on my uh, grandfather and grandmother's side. Not to get too down in the weeds, but it's sort of interesting family history I've only uncovered recently. I think my uh, my grandfather's brothers were uh, Navy flyers in the Second World War. I think they were stationed at San Diego. And my grandfather was a little young to be in the Second World War, but when they came back, they were sort of extolling the virtues of San Diego. And in particular, uh, my grandfather, who was, I think, working at Swanson's uh, at the time on the docks in Omaha, you know, hauling milk cans and doing that kind of stuff for trucks and things like that. He kind of wanted to be a contractor, wanted to start his own business, very good with his hands. And his brothers came back and told him that there was this, you know, housing shortage in San Diego, all these military families had descended on San Diego and the training and things in preparation and the execution of the Second World War created all these markets in San Diego. And so they came back not only talking about what a you know great town it was. And my grandfather decided, you know, he would go out. So he went out late forties, kind of set up shop, and then my grandmother and father and uh, uncle all moved out there. And so that was kind of our origin to San Diego. They were uh embedded in sort of the Catholic community in Omaha. So they were diehard, you know, white Catholic Democrats from the Midwest, Roosevelt Democrats or Roosevelt Democrats, as my grandmother used to say. And I think that was because their experiences in California and San Diego didn't necessarily reinforce their attachment to Roosevelt, the Democrats, uh, but they didn't make a break from the Democratic Party for quite a few years. But then when Reagan came along and ran for governor, you know, they went from being Roosevelt Democrats to being Reagan Republicans. Um, and so it's it's kind of interesting just from a family and a personal perspective, that odyssey, which I think is replicated in quite a few households. San Diego was a pretty Republican town until fairly recently. Right. And I think that I think that's part of the reason for the transition. Right. It was it was a, it was a sleepy town. It was a Navy town. Yes, there was a lot of construction, a lot of industry kind of around the Second World War. But once the war ended, it was it was a Navy outpost. You're right. And, and places like Coronado and Point Loma, you know, were dominated by Navy households and a, a conservative Cold War sensibility, as well as a sense of entrepreneurship and this sort of, you know, kind of California republicanism, kind of low taxes, you know, go-go economics and, and that kind of thing. I think that's what drew them towards Reaganism and Republicanism. My dad was sort of a referee, but my mother was uh, was liberal, was a Democrat. And I remember animated conversations around Proposition 13, this sort of famous California initiative where property taxes for the elderly were frozen at the time of, of purchase, which was something my grandparents were very much in favor of. But my mother, who had kids in the public schools, thought this was going to be awful for the public school system. And that was sort of the politics of my family. And it was pretty animated. And, you know, the coin of the realm was knowing a little something about (laughs) politics if you wanted to be included in these conversations. Where did that place you if you had access to more than one point of view? As you're, say, going off to college, where are you politically? It's easy for for people like you and I to kind of remember where the politics of the country was at the time, but it's probably instructive for people elsewhere to, to realize that there were, there were kind of three broad issue dimensions that, that animated American politics at that time. There was this sort of tax and spend issues um, where I've always been pretty conservative. Um, You know, not that I don't think there's a solid place for government, but I have a, you know, kind of 
healthy skepticism about the government's ability to actually take the money and execute the programs effectively, I guess. Um, then there were social issues. At the time, we're talking about issues like abortion and school prayer and things like that. But at the time, it was it was it was sort of a hodgepodge of issues that you wouldn't necessarily know clung together very well. So I mentioned abortion, um, school prayer, death penalty. Uh, I mean, the notion that there's any kind of consistent ideology underpinning opinions across those range of issues is it's kind of dubious. And I was sort of moderate on those things. I They didn't animate my politics. And like a lot of, I think, California Republicans, they're pretty moderate on those issues. But then there was also foreign policy and, and communism in the Cold War. And I was pretty conservative on those issues. San Diego was a place where the defense industry was very strong, where there was this kind of kind of permeating belief in in you know the defense industry as as an important industry, important to not only the economy of San Diego but to the freedom of the world. And so across these three issue dimensions, I was you know conservative on two and on the third was fairly moderate. And that was something we used to refer to as California Republicanism. And I guess there's an analog in the East Coast, right? The the New England Republicanism. Rockefeller Republicanism or something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that was a that was a position that that resided fairly comfortably within the Republican Party at that time, um, and as you know, I'm sure we'll get to, has has increasingly been uncomfortable, I think, with the direction and trajectory of the Republican Party, right? But at the time, that, that was that was what it was, right? You know, you were sort of a three legged stool, and and the question was, were you kosher across all three of those legs of the stool, or did you dissent on any? And and if you did dissent, you did it you know, cause you to defect from party, party moorings in certain elections or not. Yeah. You migrated slightly north for college. You must have liked UCLA if you stuck there through multiple degrees. (laughs) Tell me about how you go from someone sort of with that set of ideology that you talked about to someone who's now training up to be a professional student of politics. All right. I think uh, my, my mentality when I was uh, looking at colleges was that I wanted to get away from home, but not that far away. I think I only applied to UCLA and Stanford and and I actually got the the thick envelope from both places, right? So I felt pretty good about that. But at the time, I think Stanford was about 17,000 a year and UCLA at that time was about 1,500 a year. And I, I thought there's, there's a chance that Stanford's a better university than UCLA, but I, I don't think it's, you know, eight times better. <laughs> uh, and I thought, I could get what I wanted at, at UCLA. And I was kind of, unlike most San Diegans, I was sort of like Los Angeles. I was you know, a Dodger fan growing up and a, and a Rams fan. And they were good in politics and good in political science. I was comfortable on campus. So it seemed like a good fit for me and, and the economics of my family. And as for the experience at the time, it really was a, a, a terrific place to study politics. UCLA at the time had, uh, I just sort of thought this was the way things were when you went to a major university, but they had uh, uh, people like Shanto Iyengar, who was uh, just doing experiments on negative advertising and uh, very innovative experiments and its effects, along with Steve Ansolibar. Um, John Petrosik was was developing a, a theory of what he called issue ownership. John Zoller was writing his you know kind of seminal book on mass opinion. And then on the race and politics side, you had people like Frank Gilliam and Larry Bobo who were doing uh, studies of, of political empowerment, and David Sears talking about symbolic racism, and Jim Sedanius over in the sociology department doing stuff on social dominance. 
I just sort of thought that was the way it was. This is what college is like. People are doing really interesting, great research on all these political questions. And as it turns out, I think I just caught a break. I think I was in a really cool place at a, at a fortuitous time. And so what the interests that I had um, were really nurtured by the substantive work and the academic work. UCLA political science at the time had really moved towards a very strong social scientific empirical norm. They were kind of in the vanguard of that. There was still a a, a normative bent to research, a qualitative bent to research in other places. And that's good, but that really wasn't, that wasn't where my head was at. And that wasn't what attracted me. I, I really like the, the left brain, right brain to use an overused and probably inaccurate <laughs> frame, right? I, I love the, the art to politics and I also love the science to politics. And since both those things were attractive to me academically, Boy, politics really afforded, and politics in general and survey research and public opinion in particular really offered opportunities on both those fronts, right? Crafting appropriate wording and questions and, you know, figuring out what the best areas were to kind of plumb public opinion research. The best uh, response options, that was fascinating to me, as well as the statistical basis for drawing samples and doing analysis. That that was terrific. I really enjoyed that. What did you do for a dissertation? My dissertation was on uh, political campaigns. I studied and, and had an opportunity to participate in presidential campaigns uh, rather than working my way up, which any self-respecting political science should probably do. Uh, you know, I just had opportunities. When I went to UCLA, uh, my mentor, John Petrosic, had ties with uh, people like Robert Teeter and Fred Steeper, who were big-time pollsters. Um, working at that time for H.W. Bush. And um, so I had an opportunity to, to, to go off and, and run data for them during the summers, uh, which I just I found fascinating. It, it, I will say, though, as fascinating as I found it, the, the business side of polling, you know, selling public opinion surveys to companies or candidates or something like that, I just I, I never liked that. I was completely uninterested in that. So I, I loved one side of it and I was close enough to know that I didn't really like the other side. At that point in my career, setting up, you know, putting out a shingle and setting up my own shop just wasn't something I was terribly interested in. I wanted people who were already committed to doing polls and then I would come in and, you know, help them execute those. But my dissertation actually I was very fortunate. I was interested in a literature on campaign effects, which when I went to college, like a lot of students even these days who go to college, you're kind of struck. You take a campaigns class and you realize that political scientists are very skeptical about campaigns. They, they think they're limited. Other factors are much more important in outcomes and shaping elections. And that was fascinating to me. I mean, I've, I wasn't sure, do I believe this? Do I not believe it? And so my dissertation kind of took a whack at that at the presidential level. And, uh, while at the, you know, I had this topic and uh, I also had some opportunities to go do some polling and presidential campaigns. And so my, you know, deal with, uh, with Fred Steeper and the H.W. Bush campaign was I'll go, I'll go and work in 92, but I want the data. Uh, so uh, that was fine by them. And so I, I essentially wrote my dissertation, taking a lot of data from public sources, but then a decent amount of data, uh, especially on what we call the independent variable, right? That is, what did the campaigns do? advertising visits and stuff like that. And so I had access to that information. And so my dissertation took a look at public opinion reacting to some of these expenditures or visits or things like that. And 
dissertation was okay, but it did two things that a good dissertation should do. It got me a job, uh, but it also revealed to me how much I didn't know. Well, and a PhD. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I need to get you a degree. Petrosik used to say this all the time. Needs to get you a degree, get you a job, and then you need to make it good. Those, in, in that order, he said, that's what your dissertation <laughs> is supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and then, but, but when I was done, I realized this is going to require, if I'm going to do this right, and if I'm going to do this in a way that's professionally acknowledged, it's going to get published, I, I need to add data. I need to upload the level of complexity. I, I would just throw out this bit of advice to people out there who are doing this sort of research that, you know, it, your first effort, your dissertation, your first kind of major research project, it's, it's, it's not Moby Dick, right? It's, it's, if that's the best thing you ever do, you're going to have a pretty short career. And, and I, I remember one of my committee members said that at the, at the dissertation defense, I was, I was sort of explaining something and he goes, well, if this is the best thing you ever do, I'll never hear from you again. So hopefully you'll improve on this in the future. And it's, Tough as that was the to hear. long view. Yeah, it was, it was actually really good advice. Yeah. And I tell my students that all the time. Look, you know, this is a demonstration of your ability to do research and to identify interesting problems and to engage them. But, it, you know, this is just the beginning. It strikes me as a former graduate student who didn't write a dissertation I left to do to start a company as good advice because I saw a lot of graduate students sort of languishing into years eight and nine not finishing up what they needed to finish up. I don't know exactly what the psychology there was, but I knew that that was uh, a position you could get into pretty easily and one I didn't want to be in. You know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And a lot of very, very smart people who, you know, engage in PhD programs, they are perfectionists and they're, they're not satisfied with, with it being kind of 90% of what they had thought. And yeah, it's a recipe for spending 10, 15 years in graduate school. You know, on the other hand, I, I mean, my my problem with my dissertation was there were parts of it that came out that were okay. And when I went to defend uh, members of one member of my committee in particular said, you know, chapter three just doesn't really work. And my only defense was, well, yeah, but I spent a lot of time on chapter three. <laughs> <laughs> but he he was generous enough to say, like, look, it's it's not that it's bad. It's just when, when you advance this project, you need to just get rid of it. And I, as you know, I'm sure you have this sort of personal relationship with your research. And the reality is sometimes it's just, you got to cut it loose and it's hard to do that, right? You could have data that doesn't show much, very interesting. That took a lot of effort to pull together. They say in like design, you have to kill your darlings sometimes. That's yeah. It, it, I, you think of it as your children, right? You don't want to sacrifice. I remember, uh, uh, John Zoller was on my committee and, you know, John's sort of point was, and, and he would pound me on this. And so would Petrosic, my two, you know, two people involved in my committee would say, look, um, you're not a fan here. You're not rooting for campaign effects or rooting against campaign <laughs> effects. You ask the question. And he said the key thing, both of them, John Petrosic in particular said, look, the key thing about this is however your data come out, you have to have an interesting story. And so that was the, the good thing about writing about campaigns was if, if your research shows that campaign, presidential campaigns don't have much of an effect, that's fascinating. If you show that there's an effect on the order of two, three, four, five points, that's also really interesting. And, you know, that mindset was really important for me to kind of bring to the table, right? I mean, I, I had a project that was going to be okay, irrespective of the way the data came out, and that was important. I remember being struck by a paper by Gary King, which showed polling converging on a number that was one of the 
found by you know the economy and popularity well before all of the events of the campaign take place. There were some graphics showing that. And there's something that really irritated me about that. I remember that piece very well. Yeah, it was uh, Andrew Gelman and Gary King. Yep. And it had a kind of a nice kitschy title too. It was like, how come pre-election polls vary so much when we can predict elections so accurately or you know, yeah. something like that? Yeah. 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 That was, I had the same reaction to it. Um, it was a bit of a foil for some of my research, but the more you got into studying campaigns, the more you realized that, that the, the minimalists like, you know, King and Gelman, I think probably qualify um, as minimalists when it comes to campaign effects. They had a subtle argument. It wasn't that they don't matter. It wasn't that, you know, everything else matters and campaigns are irrelevant, that nobody should campaign. It was much more subtle and sophisticated than that. And it was important to make sure that you get get the minimalist school such as it is right and that you get the maximalist school or, you know, the campaign effects school right too because they weren't claiming, on the other hand, that, you know, an extra ad in Philadelphia is going to get you 10 points. They were talking about smallish effects, a couple of points. And, and so you got to get that story right and do justice to everybody. Make sure that you're actually contributing effectively. I, I guess I settled in my own mind for some version of what happens is the two campaigns sort of cancel each other out. And so you're kind of left with this aggregate sense of how things are, how things are in the economy, how things are in the world. And that's where the vote lands. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good representation of you know the minimal effects school. Basically, the argument is, you know, both sides bring their best people to the table. You know, they're and back in the day, they were operating under some kind of structural equality because both sides tended to take campaign money that was offered under the Federal Election uh, Campaign Act. They don't anymore, but they did. So they had kind of structural equality in terms of resources, professional equality in terms of expertise. I mean, we could argue whether Carville is better than Baker or something, but but for the most part, really, really smart people are running these things. Therefore, reality tends to dominate, right? They kind of fight to a draw and whoever is advantaged by external circumstances, the economy, presidential approval, et cetera, is, is kind of going to be decisive. My sort of contribution was to, to, first of all, question the notion of how exogenous some of these things are. You know, so for instance, one of the key variables in predictions is presidential approval. And I, I question why one would consider that exogenous to the campaign. It embeds all of this other stuff. Yeah, I, I, you know, and that's not to say that it's completely endogenous to the campaign, but it's clearly affected by the campaign. So why would you, you know, why would you look at a model that, that looks at economic growth and presidential approval and say, well, it explains 50% of the variance and therefore campaigns don't matter. I mean, no one was really saying that, but. Well, they're, they're probably saying we have this number as in the spring and then we land somewhere in the fall. Yeah, but that approval embeds an awful lot about the character of the president and the time and yeah and even if you're taking a spring approval rating the notion that that's you know independent from the president's re-election campaign strikes me as being kind of nonsensical yeah. right um so that one insight was a, a a bit of a critique of the way people had characterized that literature i don't think the modelers had actually said that kind of stuff but that was sort of the imputation and the other side was well we haven't actually measured i mean all we've done you know, in the last, I, I guess from 1970 through 1990, was we've treated campaigns as what I would call a residual variance category, right? Anything we can't predict from the economy and presidential approval, well, that must be the campaign effect. 
And my thought was, well, that's a pretty sloppy way to measure campaign effects. Can't we do better? And so, you know, people like Iyengar and Ansolabir who were doing these experiments on ad effects, it kind of dovetailed nicely with my work, which was largely cross-sectional. The utility, I think, of my work was, first of all, I think I was measuring the right things. I mean, instead of just looking at, you know, aggregate ad spending, I was actually looking at gross rating points spent in particular markets. So I was trying to get a little more accurate on the explanatory variable and at a level that's a little more plausible. Right. So let's look at let's look at media market expenditures and their effects on the vote in media markets. And let's also consider alternative dependent variables, right? Not just the vote, but things like candidate favorability or you know, a lot of times campaigning is designed to do something besides move the vote, right? Sometimes I go to a location because I want to generate volunteers, I want to generate, you know, contributions, uh, you know, I want to generate favorable local media coverage and stuff like that. And so it was it was kind of a cry on my part to say, why don't we up the ante a little bit? Let's let's do a little better job of measuring and trying to quantify these things. And you know that that space from like you know the early '90s through the early 2000s, there was a lot of really good work on that. I'm accepting my own work, but other people did really good work on that. And that led to field experimentation, you know, which was an effort to to really get at a causal story. So it's it's kind of nice to be part of that 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 sort of evolution. Of, of study of campaigns where, you know, there was real interest in in doing a better job of measuring what the campaigns were doing, trying to figure out, do people actually, you know, are they mobilized and are they persuaded by this stuff? I became aware of a study you were part of with Rick Perry doing experiments with his campaign, right? Where what, you randomized where he went and then measured uh, support for his opponent and him in those in those markets before and after or something like that? In the early 2000s, consultants as well as academics started really getting interested in, in measuring this stuff. And so Carl Rove was very interested initially um, about quantifying some of this stuff. Uh, the success of the Bush campaign, re-elect in 2004, the W re-elect campaign, and what they called the 72-hour program, which has really derived a lot of its intellectual thrust from political science research by Don Green and Alan Gerber and other people showing that personal contacting had a mobilizing effect. The Obama people took it to another level. And, and then people like Dave Carney, who was a Republican consultant, kind of a, you know, a really kind of big bear of a man, great interest and in just a voracious reader. He read some of the Gerber and Green stuff. And when uh, Perry ran in, let's say, I think it was 06, uh, but then again in 2010, Carney approached Don Green at Yale and Alan Gerber, and then uh, reached out to, to myself and then Jim Gimple, who's at um, Maryland, to, to, to design some experiments. And early on in that election year, in advance of the primaries, this was 06, I think, uh, they said, look, we're going to send the governor out um, for, I think it was like 16, 17 days, right? And we're kind of agnostic on where he goes. You tell us where to go. You design an experiment because we want to figure out in advance of, I think it was a 2006 election. Um, we want to figure out, you know, do we need to send him on the road? He doesn't like to travel all that much. We're, we're wondering about the press coverage he's getting in some of these locations. Can we just do a, a radio interview in a local market instead of this? And so Alan, uh, Alan Gerber and Don Green and Jim Gimple and I work with Carney and other people um, and the schedulers. To we broke the state up into the 20 media markets, and we essentially matched the media markets. We we 
took the most similar markets and paired them. And then we would randomly draw a market for Perry to go to. So let's say, you know, one was Tyler, Magadoches Tyler, and there'd be a match and I'm just making this up, but Amarillo, right? That was the, the best political demographic social match. Well, we, then we'd randomly select, okay, if we drew pair number one, we're going to send Perry to, and we'd randomly select Tyler. And then at the same time, we'd, uh, we'd do pre-visit interviewing in Tyler, get a sense of favorability, support, et cetera. And we do the same thing in Lubbock or whatever our matched market was, Amarillo. Uh, and then, you know, we'd have the uh, the intervention, right? Candidate would go in, continue to interview, but do the same interviewing in in the, the matched market and then take a look at uh, for comparison. So we, and we did that, I want to say five or six times. So there were some limits. It wasn't completely randomized. But aside from that, they basically let us control the schedule for a while. And, and so we had a series of pairwise comparisons where we could look at, you know, did Perry move the dial when he went into these places compared to these other markets? And the, the controls were important because, you know, there's an ambient conversation during the campaign and, and there's media, you know, kind of reports of candidates activity in other markets. You know, we wanted as close a comparison at the market level as possible. And we were not just looking at, support for the candidate and opinions about Perry, but we were also looking at, you know, uh, volunteers, fundraising efforts, et cetera. So one of Jim Gimple from Maryland's contributions was to geolocate where Perry was during the visit. And then, you know, would do these concentric circles, you know, one mile away, two miles away, five miles away to look at the volunteer pattern and the contribution pattern in the aftermath of the visit. Um, and then do the same thing in the matched market. It was a kick. It was something that we didn't think they would ever do. You know, we found some fascinating things. I mean, we, you know, we found that there was uh, an uptick. It was mostly in favorability uh, as opposed to vote support. But, you know, he had an effect. And these ancillary dependent variables were particularly affected. In other words, the visits did an okay job of driving some support changes, but it really drove contributions and volunteers which was something they were interested in. And, and didn't you also find that it drove favorability for the opponent too? Yeah. Um, it was interesting. <laughs> what, what happens, and this is, this makes sense to any of us who've been following politics, but when a candidate, especially Perry, who had strong support, but also strong opposition, when Perry dropped into the market, he did mobilize Republicans, but he counter-mobilized Democrats. So Perry's favorability would go up, but so would the unfavorability. Um, and what you see is a reduction in people in the middle or people who are undecided. The net was okay, but there was variance. In some places, he counter-mobilized almost as many people as he mobilized. And so there was a sense on the campaign's part that they had to be very careful about where they sent the governor. And um, the, the other thing, I don't know if you guys have, have any memory of this, but there's this famous clip of uh, Perry where he did this interview with a Houston journalist satellite interview. And at the end, uh, the journalist was pretty aggressive in questioning Perry. And uh, at the end, it, Perry maybe not answered his questions to his satisfaction. So the journalist signs off by saying, well, I guess we'll uh, we'll have to wait till another time to get an, an answer from the governor on this question. And, and Perry was caught on mic mimicking the guy saying, I guess we'll have to wait another time. And then he said, adios mofo, which has become one of the iconic sound bites in Texas radio for the past 20 years. The adios mofo was was actually part of uh, an ancillary test we were doing, which was could could Perry do these satellite appearances uh, rather than an in person 
And by the way, the answer, the answer was no. The satellite appearances did not drive volunteers, did not drive fundraising, did not drive support. Do you think the phrase adios mofo redounded to his benefit that it made it to the light? <laughs> I, for my purposes, I thought it was great. <laughs> it was one of the funniest things I heard. Um, Sometimes, <laughs> you know, the, the curtain going up and seeing a little of a, a human is not a bad thing. It, it was, and it was, it was ironic too. Coming off of an appearance in which I don't, I don't recall whether I thought he was actually trying to dodge the questions or not. So actually, showing some emotion, I thought was pretty funny. And um, it was one of those deals where initially there was a negative reaction in the press. I can't help but think that probably helped him a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was a couple of years ago on this podcast. I was talking to Joe Trippy about the Doug Jones race in Alabama, and. You know, my experience is that media consultants think there there are definitely campaign effects and they watch those effects pretty closely. What he was saying was that whenever Trump came to town, made an appearance like the kind you're talking about, that it drove people to their corners. And of course, that was bad for Jones in a state that leaned strongly Republican. So they would have to fight back after Trump left to get back to sort of the independent view people had of Jones that ultimately barely, barely prevailed, right, in those circumstances. But it was a lot about the campaign effects, you know, that, that he was watching through that race. The first time I really noticed it was, was in the uh, 2000W campaign when we did some analysis of Dick Cheney's appearances. And we found that Cheney was extremely polarizing. And, you know, from a campaign point of view, the reaction is obvious, which is you don't send them into areas where you can counter mobilize more than you can mobilize. You send Dick Cheney into Republican areas to mobilize voters. And you probably don't deploy him as extensively as you would. On the Democratic side, I would I would submit that that Hillary Clinton had the same effect in 2016. There are so many people criticize you know, well, Hillary should have gone to Wisconsin. Hillary should have gone to, you know, Detroit, some of these other places. I don't think that's, you know, it's a marker of attention, but I think actually sending Clinton into those markets would have done more damage than good. I think what they did at the end is, as you probably recall, was that Barack Obama and Michelle Obama were in uh, Detroit, that they had Kane in uh, Wisconsin, I think late in the campaign. Now, I'm not saying what they did was adequate. I, I do think they made a miscalculation. But um, but the notion that three more Hillary visits would have locked down Wisconsin or Michigan, I think, is, is, is missing kind of the point. One of the things that seems to be a theme in some of the stuff that you've written is what isn't obvious or what is different that we can study and learn than what journalistic coverage is of campaigns or conventional wisdom is what falls at the top of that category for you? Like, what do you think that maybe you or people who, who study these things in a more rigorous way know that maybe isn't well known out there? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that the, the sophistication on the part of journalists and attentive observers has, has gotten greater. And that's not to disparage people who kind of looked at these things from outside the Ivy Tower 25 or 30 years ago, but... The good journalists read a lot of the political science. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was thinking of, um, you know, not just 538, and, and, but, but people like Nate Cohn and, um, you know, Sasha Eisenberg and, and other really, really smart journalists who've written extensively kind of plumbing and, and kind of bringing political science to the forefront. I still think there are some things that, that 
are wrong. And, and I'll start with actually some research I've done recently with John Petrosic, my advisor at UCLA, on turnout. The small thing and then a the larger thing. The, the, the small thing is there's a, a, a notion that um, the tendency towards mobilizing activities and you saw this certainly in the in the 04 Bush reelect and in the 12 Obama reelect when you know a president's running for reelection and there's just not many people out there who don't have a strong view on that president um, there's not much room for persuasion and therefore the election's all about mobilization now i think most journalists get that and write about it but i think there's a an inference or or an implied nature uh, to those sorts of campaigns that that's that's not correctly rendered. The, the implication is, is that if uh, you know Bush is just appealing to his base or trying to mobilize voters or that Obama is just appealing to his base, that somehow that is a, a red meat election. That's an election in which you're going to get uh, the articulation of these sort of really hard hitting you know, liberal or conservative messages. I think that completely misses the point about some of the challenges to mobilization. What I mean by that is, you know, if George W. Bush is going to increase his share in Hamilton County, Ohio, Right, if he's going to turn out voters in Cincinnati, um, or in you know the Pennsylvania T in these rural areas of Pennsylvania, or in suburb, maybe better example, suburban Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, Bucks, Montgomery County, right? The, the the way he's going to do that is by articulating red meat conservative messages. That's just not right, right? The, the sorts of voters that that Bush needed were voters who were a little uncomfortable with the war, a little uncomfortable with Bush's position, and and so. Yes, it's a mobilizing election, but the mobilization is to get Republicans on board who have sort of lost their enthusiasm for Bush. And I think Obama faced the same situation in 2012. So I, I think one one smallish point is that the tendency for, especially in incumbent re-election bids, for the campaigns to focus on mobilization doesn't have the policy implications that some people think it has, or doesn't have the polarization implications that some people assume that it has. So that's a smallish point. The bigger point I would raise is there's a broad assumption that uh, high turnout favors Democrats. Everybody seems to hold this assumption. Uh, Republicans seem to believe it. Democrats seem to believe it. Unfortunately, there's almost no evidence that higher turnout systematically has a partisan vote component to it. There are very low turnout elections where Democrats dominate, and there are high turnout elections where Republicans dominate. People seem to think, and, and you understand where that myth comes from, or the it's not the, overall turnout; it's particular turnout. Well, yeah, and, and of course that's absolutely true. Um, but but the idea that if uh, turnout in the next election bumps up to next presidential in 2024 bumps up to 67, 70 percent, ah, therefore the Democrats are going to be advantaged. No. I mean, it, it, the correct answer is it depends. It depends on short-term forces. There's a presumption that non-voters, because they're a little less engaged, uh, a little younger, a little more likely to be racial or ethnic minorities, in other words, they look like Democrats, that therefore, if they come to the table, that they're going to uh, you know, reflexively vote for Democratic candidates. And what we find instead is, as you might imagine, that People are less engaged, less interested, less involved. They're disproportionately affected by short-term forces. So, so whoever is doing well is going to do better if, if, if turnout goes up. Do you think that has much bearing on the spate of laws going through right now and being proposed right now that are designed to maybe lower turnout? Yep. No question. I mean, 
not to cast aspersions on our Republican and Democratic brethren who I'm sure have genuine, you know, normative reasons for believing in election integrity or voter access or, you know, trying to find the correct balance between the two. But I mean, come on, you and I are looking at this and we know that Republicans seem to be spooked by the prospect of uh, access laws in such a way that increases Democratic turnout and Democrats uh, are, are spooked by the possibility that Republicans will uh, enact laws that make it more difficult for peripheral or casual voters to vote. And so there's obviously a partisan component, a partisan expectation to this argument. And if, if I could offer a, a bit of unsolicited advice to people on both sides, it's, you know, whatever you think is right is what you should be pursuing in public policy terms. The partisan component to this is just not supported by the data. Is that true? I mean, like the conventional wisdom that's come to me about like Wisconsin voter ID was that it really may have had a substantial effect dropping turnout in Democratic areas. Is that without evidence? I, I haven't studied that, but it's come to me that way. We, in political science, it's it's funny. There's a cottage industry around these voter ID laws that's, that's developed since probably 2010. And uh, as you might imagine, given kind of the the ideological bent of the academy, uh, it's it's really been, I would say, motivated by an effort to to establish that these laws have a suppressive effect on the vote. I'm completely open to any evidence on this question. To me, it's it's a really interesting question um, and a very important question. But everything I've looked at suggests that the partisan implications of these voter laws tend to be fairly minimal. And I just offer up as, you know, kind of cursory advice or cursory observation. Look at Texas. I mean, we passed a voter ID law. Um, and in 2018, we had the highest midterm turnout we've had in 60 years. Yeah, but you might have had higher turnout, right? Like, Well, that's always the, that's always the, but, but if you, if you actually talk to people who are involved in that campaign, um, Democratic turnout, right? That, that was the Cruz O'Rourke race was sort of at the top of the ticket in 2018. And uh, we we basically got to over 8 million in a midterm election in Texas. Uh, all of the Republican consultants I talked to said, this was a few days before the election, said that they were absolutely convinced that O'Rourke's voters had voted in early voting and would vote on election day. They thought that all the variability was on the Republican side. And so what they told me was that if the election is at 7.8 million, 7.9 million, they were really concerned. What they thought was is that once it bumped up above 8 million, 8182, that meant that rural Texans were voting and that Cruz was actually in really good shape, um, which I thought was – it made sense to me once I heard it, but it was so counterintuitive to the to the dynamic, right? It, you know, Beto needs massive turnout. Well, their assumption was that Beto's supporters were locked in. And by the way, the, the, I was watching this, you know, the 2020 results in Texas with the same kind of idea that, that contra the conventional wisdom – what was really at issue was whether Republicans were going to show up and vote for Trump, whether they're going to kind of swallow whatever reservations they had about Trump's behavior and, and Trump's style and, and vote or, you know, not. My takeaway from 2018 was that Democrats are going to walk across coals to vote against Trump. How motivated are Republicans to vote to keep this guy in office or to, def in, in the case of 2018, you know, to get a Republican in? Um, I mean, I, I take your point. And it's an important one, 
But at some point, you look at the increases in turnout. I mean, the, the big voter ID states examples, I mean, Indiana is one, but but Georgia and Texas over the last 10 years. And turnout, not just turnout, but turnout in ethnic and minority communities has gone up enormously. Now, I, I think the probably the more correct argument is that Democrats and local leaders have used Republican suppression efforts as a messaging point and have counter-mobilized around that effort. I, th- I think there's serious evidence to that effect, um, which which raises kind of an odd conundrum, right? I mean, as a Democrat, should you support these voter ID efforts so that you can use them as an issue in a subsequent no. campaign? Because, you know, exactly. Yeah. So you, you don't want to go there. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a really... It's, it's, by the way, one thing I do think is interesting, and, and I would encourage people who are doing studies of these, is most of the studies in political science tend to be single election studies. I can't remember the, the author of the article, but it was a tremendous article, I thought, because it showed that in the aftermath of some of these very restrictive voter, uh, photo ID requirements, that there was, a, there was a decline in the next election, but then there was a subsequent rise. In other words, what his argument was, was that there was a learning curve, that you know it, people... If people went to the election and could not vote because of photo ID, they didn't then retire from politics. They just brought their ID to the next election. Again, not an argument for restrictive photo ID, but but sort of an interesting empirical finding that ought to inform what we do. You know, we need to think of these things as kind of occurring over a a, a time frame where learning can occur, where parties can adjust, you know, et cetera. You worked for three presidential campaigns on the Republican side. Bush uh, attempts too successful. And you also work with the Fox News polling, which is actually very well-respected polling outfit, a little bit different than their sort of opinion side, right? I'm just curious what you think is going on with the Republican Party right now. The view among the sort of the progressive operatives that I talk to a lot is something like Trump has the party by the uh, short hairs. He is a wannabe authoritarian leader. He's anti-democratic. He is not a normal Republican. He's outside the ideological lines. And yet the party is going along with him. They have no wherewithal to withstand him one by one. How do you see this? Is that at all correspond with your view of the party that at least worked for and uh, study. I have no idea where the Republican Party is right now. What we didn't see coming, you know, on the uh, on the Democratic side, um, you know, John Judas and Roy Teixeira wrote this really nice book in in '04, I guess it was, the Emerging Democratic Majority, which was a a play on Kevin Phillips' famous, you know, 1960s book, The Emerging Republican Majority, and and we saw. The, the, the rise of younger voters and racial and ethnic minorities and uh, the creative class, to borrow from Richard Florida's phrase and, and work. What we didn't see was, again, counter-mobilization or the rise of less well-educated, white, uh, aggrieved voters. We kind of fell in love with this narrative that, especially in the upper Midwest, that the that, that, that sort of white presence in the electorate was diminishing and that there wasn't really any kind of uh, basis for Republicans to counter the sort of inexorable rise of, of these Democratic voters. And that's why 2016 
And Trump's candidacy really caught everybody off guard. You know, whatever we think about campaign consultants who market themselves after the election, and, you know, I think it's right to be dubious and skeptical about how well and effectively they actually did that. The Trump people generally, and Brad Parscale in particular, they did identify, register, and vote voters that we didn't know were out there in, in any kind of serious way. And it was pretty stunning. I say that because this has created a real coalitional problem in the Republican Party. That is, you know, Trump's statements and sort of messaging on grievance, you know, uh, as populist take on trade and on immigration have opened up a segment of the electorate to Republicans that can allow them to not just remain competitive, but to to win elections. And, and it shifts the map in a way we'd written off the upper Midwest for, for Republicans. Now, there were really important strategic moves that yeah. he gets. Yeah. Like, I think he diminishes the credit he gets by having done that so crudely, you know, playing the race card. The way he did it, he moved a lot of people. He made it clear where he was. But what strikes me is it surprised us in the U.S., but if you look at what happened in so many other countries, he was running a playbook that had been used before in lots of countries. Yeah, it's. I, I guess, you know, to kind of drive my bus back to your original question, yeah. if I can get there at this point without losing all my gas. <laughs> <laughs> the reason uh, I bring up these sort of coalitional realities is that that's where the Republican Party is is, is really you know, betwixt and between right now, which is you had a guy who was, was sort of embarrassing to, you know, the Yankee Protestant and the Rockefeller Republicans, the David Brooks and, and the intellectuals of the Republican Party, who, and, and not just the elites, but some voters too, who were lost in this process. But you opened up this sort of coalitional potential. And I, I think there's a sense in, amongst Republicans that there's been a realignment. Uh, this is now part of their coalition, and they need to articulate uh, a set of issues and positions to retain this support. And, but there are others within the Republican Party who, as, as you suggested, are not comfortable with what they see as the messaging and, and framing of issues necessary to continue to develop those voters as Republicans. Uh, and then there are some who just wonder if it's a completely just a Trump phenomenon, which is even if you even if you want to get those voters by talking about uh, trade and corruption and immigration and things like that, that you can't because you're not a, you can't do it the way Trump did. So, so all of those things are kind of in this mix and Republicans have no idea, uh, I, I think what to do. And now, by the way, what's kind of interesting is there's an analog on the democratic side also, which is the, the, the unity in opposition to Trump has, kind of papered over the coalitional tensions that exist in the Democratic Party as well. Neither side is doing a real good job at this point, I think, of uh, really articulating kind of a, an effective set of issues and priorities that kind of unify their voters. Well, it feels to me like Biden is kind of doing it through policy, like he is choosing unifying moves within the party. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, my, my my only kind of pause at that comment is it's, it's a Texas-based pause, which is I think there's a sense amongst the Hispanic electorate that a lot of the emphasis on on 
race and African-American politics and historical grievances that the blacks have with. But that's not Biden's not generally pushing that stuff. Yeah, that's that's I, I think that's fair. But I think it's also the case that both in terms of, you know, the manner of speech, the statement of supports that are getting for some of the social justice movements. I think this is again, this is sort of observations from Texas. Let me phrase it this way. I have a dear friend and colleague, Karen Kaufman, who wrote a really nice piece about 15, 20 years ago called Cracks in the Rainbow, and talking about uh, racial and ethnic politics in Los Angeles. And she had, you know, kind of terrific survey data that that attested to the fact that, um, you know, black and brown politics in the city of Los Angeles were very much affected, very much permeated by zero-sum mentality. So there was a notion that if, if blacks gain, then, then Hispanics lose in Los Angeles politics. And I remember, first of all, the data were kind of unassailable. But I've, I've I've been thinking a lot about that in the context of 2021 and and beyond. I mean, why why is it that um, you know that uh, Hispanics in the Rio Grande Valley and in the border regions of Texas defected? I mean, not let's not get crazy. It's not like they were 50-50, but they did not deliver the majorities that Democrats need in order to one run effectively in the state. And, you know, part of the answer is, 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 is Trump and the, the, the way he talks about politics. And so it has to do with immigration dynamics in Texas. But, but I do think part of it has to do with uh, the notion that maybe the Democratic Party is more interested in, um, you know, kind of social justice from a, a, from a black perspective than from a Hispanic perspective. Biden seems interested in kind of delivering for certain kinds of voters, but maybe not for others. And by, that, by the way, this is just kind of an intuition. Um, and maybe it's reading a little too much zero sum or over interpreting, you know, aggregate voting data. But but I do wonder about what it is that the Democratic Party is going to offer for for the two core constituencies they have that are really growing. That's Asian-Americans and Hispanic-Americans. And the defining characteristic of both those groups, by the way, right now is that they're not that interested, not that engaged, not that attentive to politics. And so while they vote Democrat, uh, levels of identification with the Democratic Party are pretty soft. They're new is what. Yeah. That's right. And the, that's uh, right. But turnout came up so much among Asian-Americans in this last uh, presidential. It went way higher than it had traditionally been. Yeah, but it still lags considerably behind African-American and white turnout. And if you control for socioeconomic status, uh, Asian-American turnout is far below what you would expect it to be. The notion of a pan-ethnic identity to Asians, I think, is kind of, you know. But but um, if you look at the California data, some of the Texas data, um, you know, Texas data, we have pretty good data on uh, Chinese voters, Vietnamese voters, and to a lesser degree, Korean voters. And um, yeah, the numbers are up. But, you know, I just wonder about, and this is not a criticism of the Democrats necessarily, it's a criticism of party politics generally. My sense from focus groups as well as polling data in those communities is that they just don't really see politics. Um, the politics as they are articulated by Republicans and Democrats today is speaking to them in any kind of compelling way. And I think that's a challenge for both parties moving forward, which is these groups have to be mobilized, but how? To go back to one piece of my earlier question about Trump, do you see him as outside of the norm by several standard deviations as sort of my side does. I've heard political scientists say, look, like if you look at what he actually did, he's a Republican. Like most of the things that he did are kind of in line with that. Or do you see like, here's a person who 
incited an insurrection to try to hold on to office in spite of losing the electoral college and losing the popular vote and losing a million lawsuits trying to challenge it and continues to drum up support on that and probably will run on it again and may actually benefit hugely in this from having a bunch of people think that he was robbed and being all pissed off. That's not good for the country, for any candidate on either side. Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, I've been disappointed by the trajectory of politics for the last eight or nine years. And, and Trump is, is kind of rocket fuel for the sort of polarization and, and distrust and disaffection. So, I mean, I'm all over the place on how to read Trump and, and what he, is it a one-off? Is it, is it simply that, you know, he's a, a guy who really understands how to manipulate the media and generate media coverage in the service of a personal and political agenda? Or is it part of a movement that, um, you know, is kind of nascent and developing? I mean, I've, I've seen data, you know, from 2016 that, that showed that there was a significant amount of overlap between Sanders and Trump supporters with respect to their belief that the system was corrupt and broken. Um, and the, the main point of departure was that the Sanders supporters had a, a pretty significant uh, level of trust for elites and, and science and, and, uh, and, and communication from those sources, whereas the Trump people just didn't trust you know, elites. But, but in terms of their belief that the system was busted, I mean, Trump could have easily kind of fit into the Democratic Party appealing at that level. And there might have been some, you know, crude similarity on trade or. Right, something. right. And, and so, uh, you know, so there's a, a there's a part of me that, that thinks that Trump is, is in some ways of a piece with with candidates like Perot and like McCain. In, in other words, these are candidates whose primary appeal was their ability to articulate a grievance. You know, in the case of Perot, it was that the system was broken. Um, in the case of McCain, it was that the system is corrupt. and you know, Trump's ability to basically kind of articulate issues that brought to life those grievances was really interesting and, and to me unexpected. So, you know, I mean, certainly trade, you know, that the, these guys are incompetent. They can't even negotiate a, a trade deal. I think immigration is a little trickier because of the racial component to it. Um, but but I, I do think the notion that you cannot protect the territorial integrity of the country. You guys are obviously, you know, screwing up. Not, not a bad marker issue for the broader indictment of the system. To me, the, the precursors are, are, are Wallace and Patrick Buchanan. Like, I think that... I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, although it's, it, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I was at a uh, at University of Georgia at a post-election conference in 2016, and a colleague of mine, Rod Kiewit from Caltech, had a really interesting exchange with uh, John Sides, another colleague of mine who's at... Uh, George Washington and, and sides presented this sort of traditional political science data that said this is all about race, that, that you know, the loss in support for the Democrats was almost entirely correlated with levels of racial resentment as measured in surveys. And he sort of gave a 20 minute presentation and um, everybody sort of sat for a second. And Rod got up and, and said something that I really love when you actually get at these conferences. Rod said, look, I'm from Davenport, Iowa. Uh, half my graduating class went off to college and half stayed in Davenport to work at the John Deere factory. And the half that stayed basically all got laid off in 2014 when the main plant there closed. And these people had been Obama supporters and they just were so pissed off and so 
you know, kind of angry at the system that uh, they supported Trump. And, you know, you, meaning us political scientists, come along and tell us that, uh, you know, we're all a bunch of racists for uh, for this. He says, I just don't buy that. He says, and I want to know, you know, what do we make about class and where does class? And, and I just, I loved that challenge in that conversation because I think anybody would recognize that, look, race is a component, a significant component to this, but so is class. And, and there's a question of, you know, primacy and dominance of explanation and the connection between those things um, that I, I find fascinating. And I think any real serious conversation about Trump and Trump support needs to encounter. I think the, the, the tricky thing is, you know, my God, he, he's, it's so difficult. I, I think it's going to be 50 years before you get any kind of real insight into this because we're all so close to it right now and it's so visceral. And I think things that we didn't think could ever happen in the United States have sort of happened. And, and th- again, the, the key question is, is, is it Trump's fault or is, 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 is he, it just is, these sort of... Is he a cause or an effect? Yeah, I, 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 that is the great question. And... And how seriously do you do you take it when you know CNN is running breaking news cryons every ten seconds? And you know, I, I remember just thinking in 2017, you know, everything is not breaking news, uh, <laughs> and and some things could be a threat to the republic, but not everything is a threat to the republic. And when you lose your ability to discriminate between, you know, for instance, the events of January 6th versus, uh, you know, he's uh, reaching out on trade, uh, you know, to renegotiate a trade agreement with China. Some of these things are potentially existential threats, and some are not. Some are just policy differences. And and so, you know, to your question, I, you know, I'm not sure about some of this stuff. And and the Republican Party's got to figure out just basic things, retracing like are are Republicans free trade? Are Republicans, uh, you know, kind of a, a, an aggressive muscular foreign policy? Or, you know, because Trump... Or are they isolationist? Yeah. Exactly. There's so much that says that ideology doesn't go very deep into the electorate, right? I mean, I remember reading a lot of political science about that. And that's my guess is that people take cues pretty strongly right now. And that, and people didn't just switch from being pro-immigration to anti-immigration or pro-free trade to anti. They, they accepted what leaders pushed yeah yeah it, yeah it's i say that without having you know without being a student of public opinion but just my well guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i wish we had better answers yeah. for you i mean right now the the main question whether it's polling or elections is were, were the last four or five years anomalous or is it an extension of as you said forces that have been building for a while and and honestly i don't know i mean my sense by the way is that we're not going back um, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but I don't know where that leaves, you know, the, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the electorate as a whole. Uh, I'm not sure. Do you worry about that? It's very interesting, this this idea that the laws going on in the states may not have a big partisan impact, but there are also attempts in certain states to get rid of the individuals who kind of held together the results in Michigan, one of the commission people in the Raffensburger in Georgia, you know, people who bucked Trump at least and sort of said, you know, no, we counted things fairly and this is the result. And there's a real chance to have like an overturning of an election in a state by a legislature. 
things are being set up for that potentially. I think this is one of the most troublesome developments is, you know, there's sort of the politics of elections and campaigns and the back and forth between uh, the parties on policy issues. And then there's the, the, the conduct of elections themselves. And I find this very unfortunate. It's a shame given that if you talk to these election administrators and you get a sense of what they're doing at these levels, they're in some ways better than we've ever been. They're very good, actually. They're, they're professional and they're competent and they're, they're dedicated and they're conscientious. I always kind of laugh when people say there's not only no fraud in American elections, there's never have been fraud. Well, that just means you haven't read much history. I mean, in Texas in particular, we've, we've got a wonderful, colorful tradition of that kind of stuff. But I think Lyndon Johnson won that way. Oh, landslide Lyndon. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, you know, and, and alphabetical voting and stuff like that. Um, I think it's reasonable for people to want to ensure election integrity. I think it's ex- eminently reasonable for people to want to secure access. And I think it's reasonable to have a debate about, you know, where the where the line is drawn. But it's gone way beyond that. And, and I think what, what was really troublesome about 2020 was in response to COVID, the desire to create additional opportunities for voting that didn't require in-person voting, that, that the pandemic kind of connected with um, these sort of voting trends and, and access questions in a way that – in a context in which partisanship was already really ramped up and everybody saw everybody else as, as trying to cheat, basically. And it was really regrettable because I think there were some common sense things that actually ended up occurring in most states, uh, but it became imbued with this partisan vitriol. And it ended up producing an election in which one side was saying – don't vote by mail, only vote on election day. That's the only legitimate type of voting. And the other side would say, no, no, you need to take advantage. COVID serious, take advantage of the mail-in voting. And that meant that you had a vote in the bank on election day that was counted. And then over the course of the next few days, a vote that was already in, but was being counted over several days, they were heavy partisan skews. And that I, I, I hesitate to use the phrase perfect storm because it's so overused, but it really was a perfect storm. People who were paranoid about the election results saw this kind of, and it it really eroded confidence in the system. And I was I was even kind of trying to talk to people I knew in the media to, to encourage them to stop using verbs when they were ta- describing the counting. Stop talking about Biden is coming back or Biden is cutting into well, Trump's Maybe league. they shouldn't report the results until they have the totals. <laughs> I, well, maybe they shouldn't I, report it along the way. It's, it, it really is disturbing. I, I do think hopefully the Republicans will kind of come to their senses on just telling their people not to use convenience voting. I mean, if convenience voting is the law, why would you? That makes no sense. Also, they, they're historically more mail-in voting coming from Republicans, but right? When I, you know, when I started in California, Republicans dominated absentee voting. You know, and, and Democrats won elections on election day. Republicans won elections in absentee voting. And in Texas, um, that was the way it was with uh, early in-person voting that Republicans used to dominate and Democrats would do better on election day. It's, it's completely a function of the psychology of the campaigns and the parties, right? There's no reason to think that one side or the other would would just completely eschew, you know, engaging in convenience voting or election day voting. But I got to tell you, the, the way elections kind of play out now, I, I do think just as a small editorial comment, and I, th- I think a lot of political scientists are with me on this, that there are some real issues with the proliferation of convenience voting. 
a lot of it has to do with, you know, for instance, I, I work in New York on election day, you know, doing decision team work. So I vote early in Texas. Well, I tend to vote like two and a half weeks earlier than election day voters. That's a lot of time in an election campaign. I mean, there are real asymmetries with respect to the information environment that come when you get to early. And and when you do a lot of early, whether it's mail-in voting or, or uh, in-person early voting, you have an additional administrative level. Like in the case of mail-in, you know, the, the ballot has to be received. It has to be, um, you know, marked, signed, put in the mail, received, and then um, processed by the election administrator and then counted. It adds a lot of complexity to the process. And, you know, whenever you put the United States Postal Service as an intermediary, as a middleman in the system, I think you're dealing with some potential problems. I remember just a quick anecdote. Um, guy from Oregon, this about five or six years ago, I was on a committee, was talking about the Oregon system and how great the mail-in system was and how it was wonderful. And a election administrator for, from Kentucky said, okay, yeah, that's all well and good. So you're telling me the future of American elections is in the hands of the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> and I think a lot of us on the committee are like, ooh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's where we want to be. What we have a lot of evidence for is that convenience voting doesn't really move the dial very much in terms of turnout. It's not like it's significantly increased turnout. What it tends to do is it tends to cannibalize election day vote. If that's true, why why so afraid of it, the Republicans? Oh, that's, yeah, a, or that's a great question. Yeah. yeah. I, I have senses that they shouldn't be. Um, I, I think it's completely overwrought. There's no real support you know, for this. And I, I do think there's there's actually some evidence that that the convenience voting can can hurt turnout. And I have a colleague at uh, Wisconsin, Barry Burden, who uh, has kind of had an interesting intuition. Barry's notion is that you know election day used to be kind of the Super Bowl. And, and you get a lot of casual voting because of the buzz surrounding election day. Um, but that's dissipated in kind of a modern environment when you can vote for, you know, in Texas, like two weeks before the election. And then there's election day and it's sort of, oh, yeah, there's another day to vote. But I think that's an interesting observation. And my sort of opinion is that, you know, why not have multiple? You know, why not have a three-day national holiday? And why are we voting on Tuesday from eight to eight? I mean, what, you know, all of these things to me, it should be super easy to vote. And, you know, there's so many barriers that are unnecessary that both parties have put in place. Yeah. And in Europe and other countries, they have, you know, multiple election days, their national holidays. And, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating for a specific kind, but I ask my students all the time, you know, could you, could you devise an election system that's more inconvenient for people? Let's, let's, let's hold it in the mid fall on a Tuesday during, you know, regular working hours. Um, you know, it's, why not get it's a holdover I, from a long time ago? Yeah. So I guess, I guess my position is a little middling on this. I, I actually like election day voting, but I would open up the days. I would make it a two or a three day deal. And, and like you said, that, you know, after the third day, all the votes are in, there's a paper record, we count them and, you know, that's, that's it. Right. Um, you know, rather than this, you know, week long process as we had in 2020, where everybody's partisan suspicions are running amok, you know, whenever I talk to somebody who is discussing what they work on with animation and interest, I just love that. Like I, to someone to have a career, take you to a place where, you know, you're clearly, you're part of different polling enterprises, you're a professor at a good university, you're, you're excited to talk about this stuff. It's obvious. What advice do you have for young folks 
or people lost in their careers about finding their way to something that fits them. It's fun to think about that when you're working in an area that's not obviously going to result in a lucrative career. My advice to my students is to bet on yourselves. Most of my students could go get a law degree or go to the business school and, and do pretty well. And if, they, if they're fired up about the law, if they're fired up about business, then do that. But if you're not, don't. If what interests you is politics, then have enough confidence in yourself and your ability to, to do something important and of interest to people that's going to entertain you. I mean, you know, you and I are talking about careers, you know, let's say we start in our mid twenties, we think like, ah, well, career will probably be 40 years. Well, these kids are probably going to live to be 95, right? So they're talking about 70 years um, of doing something. And do you want to do something you're lukewarm about for 70 years? No, no. If, if you like, and to further refine it, I, I'm a citizen. I, in, I, I think about policy. I think about the implications of policy and, and Congress and the state legislatures and my local, uh, my local uh, political organizations and entities. But I actually like campaigns more. I study the other side of it, but that's not where my research interests are. Uh, my, my interests are in elections. Just to restate what you already kind of suggested, do what you're passionate about and trust that you're smart enough and dedicated enough to create value by virtue of your your interest in it and your engagement with it and just thinking about it and writing about it and and you know kind of engaging important questions. I mean what's interesting in the area of politics I was thinking even more broadly but in the area of politics there are now so many varied professional types of jobs that didn't exist before. The intersection between data science and politics which broadly polling f fits into activism. You can, there's professional jobs in that studying it, uh, reporting on it, being a candidate, uh, you know, running a, an interest group. I mean, it's really incredibly broad. The opportunities, if you're in, in technology, you can have a, a startup company or work for one that, that does political software, or it's kind of a broad arena for talented people. It is. And, and, and permeable. Yeah. And the, the, the other, I guess, more practical bit of advice, less broadly philosophical, is I tell myself, develop a skill, right? Whether that's uh, statistics, whether that's a creative work or production work, whether that's programming. It's one thing for, okay, Professor Shaw wrote you a recommendation, said you're a smart guy or a smart woman. It's another if I can say, okay, she knows how to do Stata. She knows how to handle, you know, large data sets. Now a campaign, a party, an interest group is going to say, oh, okay. Um, so if you're in college, leverage the opportunity to, to develop particular skill sets. If you're outside of college and thinking about getting in, um, take advantage of, of online or other professional opportunities to develop those skills because, as you suggested, those skills are in demand now. They are, but I would say it goes broadly to to leadership, to communication skills. I mean, it's not just... Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. I yeah. agree. In fact, just as a closing anecdote, I had Carl Rove in my class, I don't know, about 10 years ago. And one of the students said, if you could redo your college time, you know, Mr. Rove, what would you do? And Carl said, I take more English classes. And I sort of laughed. And he said, no, I'm serious. He said, your ability to communicate and to write is worth its weight in gold to anybody in politics. And I think he's dead on about that, just to your final point there. Yeah. Well, 
Is there a question that you've never been asked in a forum like this that you'd like to be asked? Uh, who's going to win the pennant? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't um, know. That's a great, yeah, that's a great. I know, I know who I'm rooting for. <laughs> and my um, team is in last place in my division. Yeah, my that. team is in third place and is beset by injuries. But, you know, that's a great question. What, you know, what question would I like to be asked that haven't been asked? Um, I think the question that um, I've always sort of wanted to to toy with a little bit or to have someone engage with is, um, you know, what do I think of the intersection between formal political science research and um, like what people like Nate Cohn or Nate Silver or other people are doing? Uh, in other words, you know, what's my criticism of political science or my own profession? What What is your criticism? I don't know if I'm in a minority on this or not, but I, I welcome the the Nates and other people, um, and, and Sasha Eisenberg and other people. Um, I think it's been a little bit of a failing on the part of political science to represent our research effectively to the public and to get our ideas out there. And nature abhors a vacuum, right? And, and uh, certainly the internet abhors a vacuum even more than nature. And other people have filled that vacuum. But that, that that doesn't bother me. I mean, they're mostly, one, they're mostly getting it right. And they have more energy than I do about that. I kind of look at the... Well, they have they they have a team and they have a... You're you right. Know, it, I mean, it's a business. And it is. It's, it's an information business and it's an interesting one. And it's an enviable one, I think, to people, uh, to, to people with smaller platforms to look at somebody, uh, you know, and say, wow, you know... That- that person's reaching millions of people with their thoughts about campaigns and elections. And, and I'm writing, uh, you know, journal articles that are read more narrowly. And, that's right. So that's why I find it. I, I, I welcome the question just because I, I think it's important to be self-critical. So what would our self-criticism be? And I think that's it. But having said that, like you were saying, I think it's gone pretty well, given that we didn't get out in front, that we didn't revolutionize interest in data science and stuff like that. But other people did. And like I said, they're, they're, they're doing it kind but of, but they might've trained better. among people. Uh, they I trained they up did. among. Yeah. Yeah. I think they did. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, I mean, the reality is I can't write, you know, I can't write two articles on politics a day. I, I just don't have the intellectual energy to do that. Well, you've um, done a different away. job. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. But I'm blown away by people who do or have a team that can do that because I think, I think they've added considerably to the conversation about politics. Well, well if if you're a practitioner in politics or an, a very interested observer like a student, where would you go to read about the findings of political science short of the 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 books and the articles themselves? Like who is doing a good job of what are the sites or the podcasts or the, right, the right. blogs or whatever they are now? I don't know if you uh, are familiar with uh, um John Dickerson's podcast, uh, Whistle Stop. I've never listened uh, to it. Oh my gosh. It, it, it ran for a couple of years and uh, it was just a terrific, you know, I guess they run probably uh, 25 minutes to 40 minutes on singular episodes in campaigns. And it was just really, as I said, it's qualitative in a way that I don't tend to, you know, that's not the way I approach these questions, but but just the qualitative information that can then then inform how you think about these things and probably do profitable, smart quantitative analysis was just terrific. I think 538 is is really good. They they lean 
a little more than I would be comfortable in a, in a particular partisan direction, but, but what they do makes that sort of minimally important. Um, I also think that the, what's happened is that in political science, the articles and the sort of focus of the articles have gotten more technical, less accessible. But I think the books, some of the books are not that way. You know, I think books have become a forum, interestingly, academic volumes, scholarly monographs have, have become a, an opportunity for scholars to write more broadly and I think more, um, you know, kind of accessibly about some of these issues, you know, and I, I've done that myself. There've been a couple, like the last couple projects I've done, they just weren't, I had to say too much for a 30 page article. And I, I wanted to walk you through the descriptive data, not just the multivariate models. And um, so I, I would encourage people take a look at like Chicago Press's offerings or Oxford, um, some of the major university presses, because I think they do a great job now of engaging interesting, important questions. Darren, it's just been an honor to talk to you. It's really fun. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I, I just, I appreciate it. And thanks for putting up with me for, you know, an hour and a half. <laughs> Longer than I expected. <laughs> that was Professor Darren Shaw. Darren is at utexas.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.